everyone, and welcome to episode 48 of the Hydrogen Nowcast for March 18th, 2022. The Hydrogen Nowcast is sponsored by New Day Hydrogen, who's helping fleet owners meet their zero-emission vehicle needs. If you're with a fleet or transit operator, and your fleet is wondering how to convert to zero-emission vehicles but still meet your operational needs, New Day Hydrogen can help by providing public hydrogen fuel stations near you and showing you the available fuel cell trucks, vans, and buses. To find out more information about both vehicles and fueling, visit the NewDayHydrogen.com website, where you can also submit requests on the contact page. Well, my guest on the podcast today is Steve Close, and that's spelled K-L-O-O-S, who's the CEO of the company Aquahydrix and also a partner with True North Venture Partners. Now, before that, Steve was an executive at General Electric, serving in senior leadership roles in the U.S. and Asia, including being a member of GE's venture capital team. But we're not here to talk about Aquahydrix or True North Venture Partners. So, Steve, welcome to the show. And what the heck are we going to talk about? Well, thanks a lot, Brian. I'm really glad to be here. And, you know, I think it'd be fun to talk about the fundamental energy transition that's needed to get to net zero and the necessary role that green hydrogen must play in achieving net zero and possibly even net negative, meaning an overall drawdown of CO2. And a key concept is this uh, carbon budget, which means how much carbon dioxide can still be emitted to keep within a one and a half degree C warming window. And that drives this decarbonization need and across various sectors. And some of those sectors can be directly electrified, and some of those are more hard to abate. And that's where green hydrogen comes in. And, you know, really, Brian, you and I have known each other for a bit and we've talked and this concept of this type of a podcast came up as we've been talking. And also with your background, we're quite knowledgeable on the subject, too. So really looking forward to the conversation. Well, thanks, Steve. And so appreciative that uh, you could spend a little time with us today. I think we ought to start out with filling in the listeners about your background and maybe a little bit about your involvement with Aquahydrix and True North Venture Partners. And I think that'll segue into how you develop some of the ideas around hydrogen at scale that we're going to talk about today. Sure. Yeah, thank you. So True North Venture Partners is an interesting uh, firm on a evergreen investment structure. So not a 10-year time bottom, but an evergreen. And True North's goal is to really help transform industries by coming up with transformative or disruptive innovations. And so when we invest, it's not to push an idea or push a technology, but to understand the type of societal or value chain transformation that's needed, put metrics onto that, and then go hunt for the innovations. And when we find them, go put them to work. And Aquahydrix has been our concept in green hydrogen to redesign fundamentally from a first principles approach, water electrolysis to create an idealized platform for converting renewable energy into green hydrogen. And it's really that fundamental energy transformation. We've got the renewable energy that's getting so inexpensive that opens up the window to be able to make green hydrogen really inexpensive. And it's been that idea of how, if we could get to really inexpensive green hydrogen, we then can cause the practical and economical decarbonization of many of these hard debate sectors and actually get to the point where they can be economically advantaged with green hydrogen versus the fossil-based incumbent methods. Well, amen to that. I'm, I'm with you all the way. Uh, so a couple minutes ago, you mentioned carbon budget. Yeah. Let's talk about kind of what that means and how green hydrogen fits into that budget. Yeah, that's a great question. So 
The concept is that since pre-industrial times, the world has emitted about 2,000 billion tons of carbon dioxide or 2,000 gigatons. And the planet has already warmed a good one degree Celsius or so about on average. And the world has come together. So most nations have signed a treaty trying to say that the goal is to limit average planetary warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. To have a 50% chance to keep the planet warming to just one and a half degrees Celsius average over the pre-industrial times, which would still mean a lot more flooding, a lot more heat extreme events, a lot more agricultural droughts, a lot more ocean acidification and sea level rise. But to keep it within one and a half degrees Celsius, the world can only emit about 500 billion more tons of carbon dioxide in total. And then after that, maintain net zero or better yet, net negative. Well, it, that's so true. You know, uh, thankfully, though, the world really now recognizes that mm. climate change is real and it's a serious problem. But unfortunately, I think this realization has come really a few decades too late to stop significant changes to the planet. I mean, I, I was just watching a show on TV. We're now losing around half the sea ice in the Arctic during the summer. And scientists are telling us we can expect to see an ice-free Arctic in uh, not too distant summers. And of course, permafrost is melting as well, which is a huge problem. So I think everyone now realizes we've got to cut greenhouse emissions to zero, yet emissions are still increasing. I mean, they're not even flat or decreasing. But you know, even if we get to cutting emissions to zero, I don't think that's enough. I mean, we we still need to be pulling carbon out of the air. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, thankfully, the the life in the soil has the ability to sequester a lot of carbon. But first, we've got to stop using pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and all those uh, sides and uh, chemical fertilizers as well in order to bring the soil life back. So anyway, clearly, we need to decarbonize. And of course, the big four emitters are. Agricultural practices, you know, especially the way we treat the soil, like I just mentioned. Electricity generation is a second big emitter, which actually that greening up is well underway in a lot of places. And then, of course, home and building heating, which I consider really the hardest to solve, not for technical, but really for financial reasons. And then transportation. Now, we have the technical solutions for all of these, but of course, we need to implement these solutions, which takes time. And in some cases, like with home and building heating, we've got to find a way to pay for that change. So, Steve, (laughs) now that I lay all those tough challenges out at your feet, I mean, have you got some thoughts on the way forward here? Well, I'll do my best. I think in the agricultural sector, we're really talking about ammonia and it's like derivatives urea. And in that case, making ammonia is really just combining hydrogen and nitrogen in the Haber-Bosch process. So decarbonizing that should be relatively straightforward by just substituting green hydrogen for the incumbent fossil-based hydrogen today. Electrical generation seems, at least first glance, of being straightforward. Just do a lot of solar and wind and maybe some hydro and maybe a bit of nuclear, depending on tendencies in that uh, jurisdiction. But the issue there is the intermittent potential of renewables, of solar and wind. Sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, that we need longer duration energy storage. And there's a really interesting project happening out in the western part of the country, this um, ACES, A-C-E-S project of the Intermountain Power Plant in Utah, about a 1.8 gigawatt power plant that is being converted completely to renewables. And the concept there is to build out renewables, but then make with excess renewables, make green hydrogen and the store and store the green hydrogen in caverns. And then in periods where the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, pull the green hydrogen out of caverns, run it through turbines to do electricity generation. So even in the electrical sector, hydrogen is going to have a role to play. 
Transportation is really interesting. So, for example, commercial airlines uh, decarbonizing that sector with sustainable aviation fuel. And I think we can look at an analog in World War II where Germany, being cut off from oil supplies of North Africa, developed the Fischer-Trope process to convert coal to synthesis gas and then synthesis gas to synthetic aviation fuel as well as synthetic diesel for their trucks and tanks. And that process of synthesis gas to these derivatized products, well, we can get to synthesis gas today by combining green hydrogen with carbon dioxide. That essentially gets us to synthesis gas, but a green synthesis gas. And we can use those same routes to make green or sustainable aviation fuels. And there's other routes from synthesis gas to products as well. For car container going or cargo shipping across the oceans, some people are looking at just liquid hydrogen. Others are saying maybe it's the ammonia we can use. And some others yet are saying that methanol might be the fuel. And Maersk, the large shipping company, they've been ordering and building ships that can run on methanol, green methanol. So I think we can see that start to decarbonize there. And then trains, we see trains in Europe beginning to run off of green hydrogen directly. And I think in the transportation sector, well, Brian, you're way more of an expert on the road-based traffic of, of, of cars and trucks and so on. So I think it'd be quite interesting to hear your thoughts about the decarbonization in the transportation sector. Well, thanks, Steve. And you know, as I've said many times on this podcast, if, if we're going to convince people to make a change, and, and we're speaking here about uh, converting from petroleum vehicles to zero emission vehicles, the only way we're going to do that is to offer them an alternative that provides the same performance and convenience as what they have now. Now, battery EVs are great, but we have to admit that they are different from petroleum vehicles. And on the one hand, if you charge at home and only drive around town, they actually perform better and are more convenient than petroleum. But for the many businesses and people who want to drive long distances and haul trailers or cargo, you know, battery EVs are pretty inconvenient and impractical because of the long charge time. So because of the fact that we've got to convert 100% of vehicles to zero emissions, we need alternatives. And of course, the alternative I'm talking about here is fuel cell EVs. Now, really, the only thing we lack to make fuel cell EVs the preferred vehicle type is hydrogen fuel stations. Now, the European Union, Japan, and California realize this, and they've been busy installing hydrogen fuel stations. But unfortunately, I'm frustrated because the U.S. government has not really taken up the cause of getting a minimum number of hydrogen fuel stations established to enable this critical technology to take off. Now, something that we're going to talk even more about, but, uh, but another thing that we have to uh, really make sure we don't lose sight of is that the main reason to use hydrogen is to decarbonize. You know, to me, it makes no sense to create hydrogen that isn't greenhouse gas free. And of course, greenhouse gas free hydrogen is called green. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of contention right now between environmentalists and those who want to jump on the hydrogen bandwagon and create hydrogen by any means. But I don't think we should throw out all hydrogen just because some isn't green. But we need to push for the green hydrogen because we absolutely need hydrogen. And the reason we need hydrogen, as you've spoken to before, is really to support renewable electricity for those functions where renewable electricity is lacking. And those are things like energy storage and fast transfer to vehicles. 
Now, another thing that I've said many times on this podcast is that we all need to update our opinions weekly because the technology is changing so fast. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, you know, one of those changes is really the plummeting cost of green hydrogen. And people have developed this reflex of saying, oh, green hydrogen is more expensive than gray or blue. And unfortunately, that just gets repeated without thinking about it. But that gap is closing really fast because of the low cost of renewable electricity, you know, mainly from wind and solar, plus a downward trend in the equipment costs. So Steve, why don't you give us your understanding of some of those costs for green hydrogen and where the costs of green hydrogen are today and where we can expect them to be in the future and why? Yeah, well, I think to look at the cost of green hydrogen, we have to consider a green hydrogen project that would be built at a reasonable scale and would be a bankable project. So it'd be a project where you know financing could come in at a reasonable cost of capital and it would be a project to be well-defined. And the big inputs into producing green hydrogen are really the cost of the raw electricity, the cost of the electrolyzer system, and then the overall balance of plant, those three things. The cost of electricity ideally should be the biggest cost to making the green hydrogen because the other stuff is just a conversion. And ideally, you'd be able to whack those down over time and just essentially take the cost of the green electricity with a slight premium to make the green hydrogen. Now, the energy intensity of making green hydrogen on average is about 50 kilowatt hours per kilogram of hydrogen produced. So say that if electricity can be sourced for, uh, in a very optimistic scenario, that's reasonable at large scale, so two cent renewable electricity, then just the electricity cost in making green hydrogen would be about $1. And I think we can look forward to the uh, electrolyzer costs, you know, getting to a reasonable level, which we're certainly uh, on aim to do, and then minimizing the overall project cost, the balance of plant, the EPC time, the project footprint, and so on. So that would be a relatively modest adder too. And maybe we could see that those adders would be maybe in the $0.35 cent to a fifty adder on top of the cost of electricity with that number going down as time and scale goes up and as the projects get bigger. Now, two cent electricity is also optimistic. Maybe three cents might be more reasonable over time. So if you do that math, you can see how we can get into, you know, a little over a dollar to maybe two dollars a kilogram for the green hydrogen. It's really building out these renewable projects at scale and getting the green hydrogen systems and the projects done at scale. I think what's really interesting, Brian, is today when renewable energy projects are getting built out, so solar or wind, they're generally getting built out where there's a local demand for that produced electricity and where there's a grid available to be able to take that electricity. In the future, the green hydrogen projects, in my view, are going to be placed in places of the world where there might not be too many people and there might not be a grid but where the renewable potential is so outstanding. So places like Namibia in Southwest Africa, where you know there's not a lot of local demand there for green hydrogen, but the renewables potential, solar and wind is so fantastic that you can get an overall blended high capacity factor and huge projects with really inexpensive renewables, likely under two cents, and build these at such large scale that now you can make green hydrogen in those cases for maybe a buck fifty, a buck and a quarter, or even potentially lower over time. And then at those sites, probably what will happen is pull nitrogen from the air, make ammonia right there, make methanol right there, and even make some other products at that location. So I think we're going to see something exciting happen with green hydrogen as it starts to scale up, where the costs then are going to get to be so attractive 
that they just economically went out over time. And also what's interesting too, Brian, if you look at the cost of hydrogen today, or just even look at um, gasoline or diesel or aviation fuel, they are based on a feedstock, oil or natural gas, that is highly volatile in their pricing. And so it's very difficult to be able to predict what these products are going to cost into the future. So somebody building out a classic fossil-based project has got to take that risk into account. But these green hydrogen projects, those economics of the cost of green hydrogen produced from the project are going to be really well-defined because you know what the renewable cost is, you know what the electrolyzer and the system cost is, and then the OPEX is really pretty trivial because it's just the sun coming in, the sort of the sustaining OPEX you can calculate. So the cost of green hydrogen is going to be not volatile, very different from the fossil-based energy sources, which has also got an economic value on it and makes it even more attractive to go the green hydrogen route. Well, that's also true. And uh, especially right now with the situation of Russia invading Ukraine. Mm. And uh, I know it's not all about oil, but there have been a lot of wars in the world uh, fought over oil. And if we've got distributed generation of hydrogen around the world at a stable price, I think that could help calm some of those those skirmishes that we see around the world. Absolutely. Um, And with that, Brian, we see right now the European Union is raising their targets for the total amount of green hydrogen that they want deployed because they see that they need to reduce their dependence on Russian and foreign sources of energy. And so their target previously for 2030 was 40 gigawatts of electrolysis on the continent by 2030 and 40 gigawatts off the continent, but imported into Europe, so 80 total. Now they're raising that target to somewhere between 110 to 140 gigawatts worth by 2030, which is just a crazy huge increase and a crazy high number really for this energy independence that you're talking about. Well, let's hope that the United States starts to follow suit with with some of that. Hmm. You know, something else, Steve, that occurred to me as you were talking is to put the price of hydrogen in perspective for our listeners, especially around transportation. Now, a fuel cell vehicle gets about 2.5 times the the mileage out of a kilogram of hydrogen as a gasoline car, similar gasoline car does with a gallon of gasoline. So basically what that means is you could pay 2.5 times the cost of gasoline for your hydrogen and still have the same dollars per mile for your vehicle. So in other words, right now here, the price of gasoline is about $3.75, or sorry, $3.50. And $3.50 times 2.5 is $8.75. So if you're paying $8.75 per kilogram for hydrogen for your vehicle, your cost per mile is the same as gasoline right now. Hmm. And if we can get below that $8.75, it's going to be even cheaper. So that's a good thing to keep in perspective. Yeah, and I think that's quite possible. Now, the hydrogen, you have to compress it. That's going to add some cost. But I think the cost entitlement for the green hydrogen into transportation is going to be much more attractive than what you're going to get from the crude oil and from the gasoline-based. And like we talked about, you're not going to have that pricing volatility that drives people nuts. Well, that's right. And because you can make hydrogen anywhere, if you just have electricity and water, you can get around the transportation costs as well. Yeah. Well, uh, Steve, earlier you mentioned about getting to net negative. Uh, That is where the global greenhouse gases, including CO2, would actually be decreasing over time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the funnest things I like to talk about. So uh, we talked about synthesis gas being a feedstock for making chemicals and fuels and products. 
So synthesis gas, again, can be derived from green hydrogen and carbon dioxide. You do something called a shift, a slight shift. It's a simple thing to do, and you get syngas. Imagine you have synthesis gas, and let's say you ferment that synthesis gas using gas fermentation into ethanol. Now, actually, Brian, at True North, we have another company of ours that is doing just that. But there's maybe other means, too. So if you can get to ethanol, if you dehydrate ethanol, which is a very simple thing to do, you get to ethylene. Once you're at ethylene, you make polyethylene. Polyethylene is a plastic. You can also make other things. You can make synthetic fabrics. You can make other types of plastics and other types of materials. Imagine if you do that now, if you made plastics from green hydrogen and carbon dioxide to make these plastics, you are now essentially sequestering that carbon in these materials that aren't going to degrade with any, on any time scale. So you're essentially drawing down the amount of carbon dioxide. You know, a lot of clothing is made of synthetic fibers that were derived actually originally from crude oil. And people don't realize it, but they're actually wearing crude oil. Imagine if we can flip this and make these products from green hydrogen and carbon dioxide, and they're essentially wearing fully renewable, net carbon negative clothing and having materials. It's really exciting to think about that. And where the, we see the cost of green hydrogen going, and therefore the cost of like ethylene, green ethylene, and green polyethylene and green other types of materials and plastics is actually can be economically attractive, giving consumers without, you know, an added cost, the ability to have products that not wearing crude oil anymore, but being fully sustainable. And I think that's really exciting. And over time, being able to start to draw down the CO2 emissions as well. Well, that's absolutely right. And it's really exciting to think about the things that can be done when people put their minds to it, you know, to take the idea of let's get some carbon out of the air, let's combine it with hydrogen and let's make things out of it that, as you say, are either plastics or fuels or other things. So it's an exciting time. And I think once people start putting their minds to some of these things and trying to figure out how to do it, and how to make it make business sense, we're going to see a lot of that. Well, you know, governments around the world are really grappling with how to put in place the correct policies for getting to net zero and specifically around green hydrogen. Let's talk a little bit. What uh, what policies do you think are really needed right now? Oh, great question. I think, you know, a first thing is, is developing a standard for defining carbon intensity of clean hydrogen. And actually, the infrastructure bill that was passed in 2021 requires the secretary of the Department of Energy to come up with a definition of the carbon intensity of clean hydrogen. Now, this is actually a loaded question because do you just take the carbon intensity at the point of production, or do you do a full life cycle assessment? Our view is, and I think the view shared by common sense and a lot of people is, you have to do a full life cycle assessment. You could imagine hydrogen production that would source materials and inputs that would be from very, very dirty uh, cases uh, and sources that the hydrogen you'd produce would technically be called clean, but actually be really bad and polluting. And the overall goal here with clean hydrogen is to try to decarbonize and get to net zero to stay within that 500 billion ton carbon budget. So we really need to look at this at a full life cycle basis. So we've weighed in that. Many other people have too. And hopefully that can be done. And I think like in Europe, we can look for some of the most forward thinking on policy development. So Europe has their uh, ETS, their tax on carbon, which today I checked was about $75 a ton price on carbon. 
And then Europe is looking at how to incentivize industry to be able to actually move down the decarbonization pathway using things like a contracts for difference scheme or CCFD, which essentially would tell companies that, look, if your cost to decarbonize this sector is maybe $100 a ton, the government will essentially guarantee you that price of $100 a ton. Even if the ETS is $75 a ton, we're going to guarantee you that. So that's some ways to give certainty because these projects need to be built out and, and companies need you know, a guarantee over 10, 15, even 20 years of what that you know, carbon price is going to be. They can't bank on something that's volatile. So a CCFD scheme can help with that. In the stalled larger social infrastructure bill, there was a $3 a kilo production tax credit for very clean hydrogen that would be produced. Well, something like that would like instantly make a market in the United States overnight. It would be fantastic. And also there's things like um, coming up with a, a renewable gas standard, which would be like a renewable portfolio standard for the gas pipeline and beginning to decarbonize the gas pipeline. So I would encourage our policymakers to look at what's happening in Europe. They're a little bit ahead. California is arguably leading in the United States, but we need a little bit of an incentive. We need a little bit of definitions to make this happen. I'm Just look at electric vehicles. Electric vehicles today, you get a big tax credit. The electric vehicle pulls electricity from the grid a grid that is quite dirty, but people know that grid is getting cleaned up over time. So there's a push to have more electric vehicles, knowing that even though they're not all that clean now, because they're sourcing dirty electricity from the grid, over time that'll go away. And so I think we need the same type of incentives here on the green hydrogen to encourage the development and scale up of these value chains, the definitions to give certainty to markets so we can start to create markets and pull things forward. Fantastic. Those are all great ideas. I, I know one of the things that's being done up in Canada is, uh, I, I believe, the government there is requiring that a certain amount of hydrogen be added to the natural gas pipeline. And that doesn't really cost anybody anything. And it creates an initial market for hydrogen that can then be used for other things. So there's all kinds of ideas like that that don't necessarily cost money, but can help promote the technology. Yeah, that's true. And we can look at California. So the University of California at Irvine is just about to release a very important study that many people are waiting for about the amount of hydrogen that can be blended into the natural gas pipelines. We also see that Los Angeles Department of Power and Water, LADWP, just announced a hugely ambitious effort to build a hydrogen pipeline called the Angeles Link. So we're seeing some exciting things happen there. So Brian, I wanted to ask you, I understand that Colorado and some adjoining states are pursuing funding for one of those hydrogen hubs that has been set aside in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Can you share what you know about that? Well, it's just getting underway, although we've been looking at this for a while now. What you're referring to is that on February 24th, 2022, the four states of Colorado, New Mexico to the south, Utah to the west, and Wyoming to the north signed a memorandum of agreement basically to coordinate and develop a regional clean hydrogen hub. And there's a small group of us uh, who's being led by Dr. Brian Wilson, who's the executive director of the Colorado State University Energy Institute, and Ms. Mari Doby, who's the executive director of the Colorado Energy Research Collaboratory. Uh, we've all been meeting for a few months, and also part of that has been NREL and the Los Alamos National Labs and Sandia Labs and the Colorado Energy Office, as well as some representatives from the four states 
And this group expects to start including utilities and industry soon. We're really just in the initial planning stages. But Steve, I'd be curious, do you know much about what's happening with the hydrogen hub efforts in California? A little bit. We've been uh, plugged into some various efforts. So there's a, a few different groups that are coming up with concepts about a hub for California. So, for example, the Green Hydrogen Coalition has been trying to organize ideas around something called High Deal LA. Some of the utilities and universities are involved. And then interestingly, Senator Nancy Skinner just released uh, Senate Bill 1075, which would create a California clean hydrogen hub fund to provide matching funds for a federal uh, grant and would also put in place a director of California's hub. So there's a lot of efforts and a lot of people. It looks like it might be coalescing into an effort there, but I think we can expect California to put in a pretty strong proposal for a green hydrogen hub in California. Well, thanks, Steve. And um, yeah, I, I was aware of that high deal because on a previous episode of the podcast, we had Janice Lynn, who's mm-hmm. with Stratagen and the Green Hydrogen Coalition on, and, and she talked about high deal. And that's really an amazing program. And I'm hoping that we can maybe follow that uh, that lead and do that in some other states like in Colorado. Well, Steve, as we kind of start to try to wrap this up a little bit, I, I really appreciate you sharing your insights and spending some time with us today. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to cover? Well, Brian, I'd just like to thank you. You've really helped to catalyze a little bit of an ecosystem here in the Colorado area with the Colorado Hydrogen Network. And I think we both agree that it's fun to see some grassroots efforts start to come around the green hydrogen and just the organic interest in green hydrogen and see this uh, mushrooming and really blooming of this effort of uh, you know multi-stakeholders, all sorts of people to try to really bring green hydrogen forward. And I'd like to just acknowledge your role, Brian, in, um, in helping to create an ecosystem here. So thank you. Well, thanks, Steve. You know, uh, I tell people I I couldn't not do this. <laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't live with myself if I if I gave up, and I'm I'm not going to give up. But you know, I mean, really, hydrogen is an idea whose time has come now, and the reason yeah. for that is the reducing costs of electricity with solar and wind. I think that's what's really going to make it practical. And again, plus the realization by everybody that we are off the cliff when it comes to the climate. We've we've got to do something. Well, Steve, what's the best way for listeners to contact you? And also, how could they find out more about Aquahydrix and True North Venture Partners? Yeah. So Aquahydrix, I think we've got a great website. You can go there. You can uh, send an email in to the info at aquahydrix.com mailbox, or you can get me on the LinkedIn, Steve Klos, K-L-O-O-S. Or you can send me uh, an email, Stephen with a V, Stephen.Klos, K-L-O-O-S, at aquahydrix.com. Love to hear from you. Okay. Well, thanks, Stephen. And just in case, listeners, Aquahydrix is spelled A-Q-U-A-H-Y-D-R-E-X, all one word. All right, Steve. Well, thanks again. So listeners, I'll be sure to put links in the show notes for all the things that we talked about today. And of course, as always, if you enjoy listening to the Hydrogen Nowcast, please consider subscribing to the podcast and also give us a rating in your podcast app because a good rating helps us be discovered by other people. And of course, word of mouth recommendations are really important. So consider letting people in your own network know about the Hydrogen Nowcast. So once again, I'd like to thank New Day Hydrogen for sponsoring the Hydrogen Nowcast. New Day Hydrogen's working to build out and deploy hydrogen infrastructure to enable any of us to convert to zero emission vehicles. And lastly, if you'd like to contact me, I'd love to hear from you. So you can reach out to me through the website at www 
colorado-hydrogen.org or on LinkedIn. So until next time, this is Brian DeBruin wishing you health and prosperity. Goodbye.